Up next, React, trends in vaccines and therapies for C19, providing a view of the vaccine and therapy pipeline. During this panel, we'll be hearing from Phil Rist, Executive Vice President, Strategic Initiatives, Prosper Insights, and Dan Hausman, co-founder and CTO of Graticule. Prosper Insights and Analytics is a global leader in consumer intent data, serving the financial services, marketing technology, and retail industries. They provide global, authoritative market information on U.S. and China consumers via curated insights and analytics. Graticule's mission is to accelerate medical innovation by enabling research on advanced real-world data. Their approach is differentiated by focusing on large repositories of unstructured patient data, including free text, clinical notes, and imaging data. These advanced data types are required for the next generation of real-world data, including medical device CER, biomarker discovery, and validated studies. And now, please welcome your moderator for the panel, AWS Data Exchange Global Business Development Leader, Healthcare and Life Sciences, Dr. Fred Lee. Uh, so first, uh, we'll have uh, Dan Hausman go, um, and then Phil can go. Um, I have enjoyed every conversation that I've had with these individuals. Um, they always provide great uh, insights and observations themselves, and I uh, am sure the audience will as well. So, uh, Dan, maybe if we uh, start with you, that'd be great. All right. So I'm going to be talking about um, how we can leverage advanced real-world data to respond to COVID-19. I think I'll, I'll start by just giving everyone a quick overview of what's real-world data. I assume everyone does know because you're in the data world, but you know the, the short answer is real-world data for us means patient data. Um, and it's patient data that can be used for a variety of different applications. In the case of COVID-19, um, we're working with mostly life sciences clients interested in supporting um, their R&D pipeline, especially bringing um, existing therapies and new therapies to market based upon data that's being collected at the point of care. Um, some of the major applications include repurposing the existing drugs, but we're also seeing um, a strong interest in being able to reduce the complexity and the burden of building out clinical trials by doing things like synthetic control arms, which really getting into uh, beyond the basic data people have had in the past, like billing claims, and into these more advanced data types that, that are available in the health system, but take a little more work to get to. So, so at Graticule, you know, we really focus on partnering with health systems, partnering with HIT vendors, um, and helping to support this kind of research. I think I want to jump right into vaccine development. And can you put up a, a poll question about vaccine development? Because I think we're trying to work at what's called warp speed um, based upon this operation warp speed. And I think everyone believes we're gonna get the economy back in order if we can just get a vaccine to market um, that can be delivered at scale. What do people think is uh, preventing us from at warp speed, which may be faster than the speed of science, but it could be faster than the speed of anything on this list, like lack of funding, regulatory issues, scientific complexity, uh, challenges recruiting patients or efficacy issues. So while people are voting, um, I'd quickly say that we're sort of operating in, in a weird warp that things are happening very fluidly in the vaccine space. Um, here's an example just from the last couple of days, and I'm sure many of you have experienced ups and downs in the stock market, lots of positive and negative sentiment happening based on 
what's happening within the COVID trials within vaccines, they're very early stage. They're in the stage one phase, maybe stage two, um, which means very little has been done to see whether or not these are effective vaccines. Um, but you can see here, uh, let's get to the, the, the results from the poll. Um, it looks like people think that we just don't know what's gonna happen, um, that the safety and efficacy issues are gonna be um, some of the hardest pieces of this. And, and luckily, and this is unlike any other disease on the planet, um, funding is not an issue. Um, and I think that there is still probably correctly so scientific complexity issues given that we don't actually know which of these new technologies will work because there isn't enough history behind them. Um, so thanks for sharing. Uh, if we go back to um, this example I'm giving, um, between July 15th and July 20th, uh, Bloomberg said, you know, the AstraZeneca study may be the leading front runner to, there may be some real issues. And the rationale behind where these issues sit is that all we know about these vaccines right now is A, they're safe enough to proceed into clinical trials at a larger scale, and B, do they mount any kind of immune response? And the thing that concerns um, at least investors is that there's different levels of immune responses within the different drugs, the different vaccines that are being tested. In the case of AZ, um, there was a, a uh, a belief that they may have had slightly less of an immune response, which could mean that it wouldn't actually protect as well from the virus. So we're seeing this news in real time, but we're trying to move to um, the next phase. The next phase being the phase three clinical studies, the studies that are gonna have 30,000 plus patients to determine the efficacy and, and safety of, of these vaccines. Um, but I think there's maybe some slight misunderstanding of how vaccines work, which is you give an attenuated virus to someone, they take it, they mount some kind of antibody response and forever they're protected. Um, the reality vaccines don't actually work that way in most cases. Um, there's some response, but many diseases when they have effective vaccines, polio is an example, patients still get the infection. It's just that there's an attenuated response such that the vaccines that came out in the 50s caused people to have a safe polio infection rather than one that caused um, paralysis and, and potential mortality events. And so efficacy is, is, is tricky to measure um, because we have to get enough of a, a immune response in the patients, but at the same time, we have to be able to look at what is it really preventing because we're still gonna see infected patients. Um, and you know, what makes that then hard is how do we see those patients in the context of something we can't control the exposure for? Um, so it's becoming important for the vaccine developers to understand how they can maximize the ability to measure this in the shortest time frame. So if we want warp speed, which is before the end of the year or before the end of next year, however you want to look at it, um, we need to have recruitment of patients in the right places but at the same time, um, safety is a real potential concern. So even in the Moderna vaccine early study, there was one patient in the 35 tested um, who had a severe response. And you know it was at the highest dose and that just shows that dose dependency um, and doses may really improve the ability for the effectiveness um, can become a real problem 
especially in certain subpopulations, as well as there's this latent risk that you just can't tell. And it has happened with vaccines and in early testing of, of even some versions of the vaccine before COVID, um, with these adenovirus vaccines that, that look like the AstraZeneca one, where instead of attenuating the immune response, you have hyperimmune responses. And so we just don't know until these large-scale studies are done what the vaccines are going to look like in terms of their efficacy and safety. But the things that are being asked of us data folks who can help supply information to them to plan the studies, as well as to do ongoing surveillance as those studies roll into phase four, um, is who can be targeted and what places can we target to run these studies that have the highest potential to be able to show the effectiveness. And that means who's going to be exposed, you know, healthcare workers or meat packers. And that means getting access to data that's not normally in a healthcare record. Um, but also, you know, where are those people, right? And where are they? Are they in Brazil? Will they be in Brazil when we actually roll out our trial? Um, and so understanding and forecasting, you know, what kinds of populations and where to test is really important because if, if we end up vaccinating 30,000 people and none of them are exposed, we have to start over. Um, and then furthermore, a lot of the nuances of the vaccine are going to come down to things that aren't normally measured in the severe patient population. So what do these mild and baseline infected patients look like? which means trying to get into data sets that may look like patients at home, patients being monitored who are sent home to take their own spirometry and their own temperature, uh, reports of symptoms that are, that are not the most severe symptoms. Um, and then finally, you know, a lot of the vaccine study design and real world data efforts really boil down to how to transition after something is uh, launched because we're expecting you know, there's going to be a billion doses of each of these vaccines sitting in a warehouse ready to go. Um, and whether we have a great outcome from a study, the real world could still bring new safety signals we never saw and new effectiveness problems that, that didn't get anticipated. So that's kind of the vaccine space. Um, we're also seeing a lot of activity in organizations working on their therapeutics. Now, there's been scant approvals for the amount of money that's been spent on uh, COVID-19, none in the US. You can see there's a British flag, a Chinese flag, a Japanese flag, um, uh, but there have been some you know, well-publicized discontinued studies like hydroxychloroquine. Um, at the heart of what's happening in the therapeutics development is three basic strategies. One, fight the virus with things that will amp up the immune system, or defeat the virus, to uh, fight the inflammation responses that are causing the most severe negative outcomes. Um, you know, all these weird looking characters probably boil down to bits of pieces of the cytokine system that, that, that are causing that immune response that starts with fever uh, and, and can end with some very bad outcomes. And then finally, looking into all of these comorbid conditions, especially because patients who are treated um, who have the most severe cases tend to be frail elderly um, and things that appear in these sort of more uh, at-risk populations like uh, COPD and cardiovascular conditions. Um, so the kind of studies that are being asked from real-world data right now from us are basically 
at least one big piece of them are we've seen in a preliminary data set in real world data that our product, product X, has better outcomes. And therefore, there may be a lower risk of negative escalations. Can you get the data from the health systems or any data from the overall real world space to see who's had this drug, uh, especially the ones that are already on the market, um, as well as be able to determine within their treatment course, looking at um, the space that matters for where it might have an impact on their long-term outcomes and compare it against a control. And so the, the, the kind of drugs we're talking about are these um, anti-inflammatory drugs. So there's lots of people who are already on um, things that are anti-TNF blockers, things like Remicade and Humira. Um, the question is, are these things beneficial? We saw that dexamethasone was beneficial, and that's why it's been um, approved as a drug within the uh, UK. And the interest from at least the life sciences side is um, how can we be ready with evidence in a portfolio of evidence we've built uh, on our products to be able to defend and also educate clinicians um, that the drug has shown a real positive response, especially with this idea that wave two will come. Um, and we may be in wave two, or we may have yet to see wave two, uh, but the difference between where we were uh, four or five months ago when we were originally trying to cobble a lot of data together is we finally are starting to see scale data and historical data and these real world data sets, which take a long time to compile, uh, sometimes they're three months behind. So we saw nothing in COVID until it was already at its peak. Um, they're catching up and there's data to really look at. And it, it's, it's being of, of strong interest within the life science community. And so, you know, finally, the, the big sources of, of interest that are coming up and, and some of the big pain points to solve for these therapeutics areas, um, you know, there's a, a very strong interest in integrating low latency EHR, what's going on right now um, with longitudinal claims, ideally longitudinal claims that go all the way up to today, um, because EHR data is very good at capturing a lot of things like lab values and patient um, experiences, not very good at being clear on what particular treatments people were given. Um, so administrative data has been the, the more gold standard for that. So without bringing those together, uh, people are operating in the dark. Um, unstructured data, there's a lot of information about whether things work or don't work that doesn't sit in any of these systems, whether it's radiology information, clinical notes, uh, spirometry, that kind of information is very interesting to the life sciences companies. Um, understanding some of these geographical hotspots, you know, this has not been an even distribution of where COVID is spread. So groups are interested in, can we obtain information from Brazil and Italy and the places where we know there's been a big uh, outbreak where we may have enriched information that, that can really communicate things about the products on the market. And then looking in these home nursing care settings that are outside of where we see, see people being treated. So I guess I wanna ask a, another quick question on poll number two, bring it up. Um, you know, I know there's some folks more from the financial services world, so I figured I'd ask you, you know, is you real interested to know about whether or not you can know something before a stock moves? Um, but also maybe there's some other things that are of interest, like 
Um, is the therapeutic increasing or decreasing or or, are certain people protected? Um, Let me know what your thoughts are. And so, you know, once we have the result of that, I think I'd just leave it with, um, you know, is that coming back? Could you show the results? Um, That's what I thought, (laughs) or at least that's what a lot of people are interested in. Um, and so, you know, I think it's an open question for, for those of you in the group who, who, who could do this outside of the life sciences world. Is it worth um, investing in trying to understand this space um, from the data available all the way down to the real world data patient level? Some of those sources are going to work, some will not. Um, but I think we, we, we can understand things in advance from these patient data sets. Um, in much greater detail than what we'll see from from very late uh, lagging data that could come out from market prescriptions and things like that, especially on why people are prescribing and, and where it's going to go. Um, but I, but I'd say the, the the bigger benefit ultimately should be to to, to all the people who have a potential for treatment um, to to really find these therapies, position them, and get them to the right patient at the right time soon. Thanks. And thanks for that. And Phil, over to you. Thank you, Dr. Fred, for asking Prosper to join in today's important session. We are all certainly at a pivotal time in history. Prosper Insights and Analytics is a market intelligence firm. And for over 18 years, Prosper has been conducting a scientific study of Americans. Month by month, we have monitored societal changes after 9-11 through the Katrina gas price Uh, time, the mortgage market meltdown, recession recovery, and now the COVID pandemic. Uh, Before I show some of the data, let me first bullet how Prosper's data is different. Uh, We're scientifically gathered consumer intent and human human behaviors data. We are uh, about 7,500 participants each month over 1.6 million to date. We're factual in nature. We're balanced to the US population. And uh, very important in today's world, we're anonymous. We always have been. So we are CCPA and HIPAA compliant. But most importantly, we're predictive and of of where the consumers are moving. We employ a battery of unique questions that are forward-looking, open-ended, and those that dive into the wise and emotional drivers of human behavior. Uh, We're an independent company and our data is used by leading firms in multiple sectors with one thing in common. They wanna predict the future. Uh, Our data has been the source for the National Retail Federation predictions on seasonal events since 2003. So the bottom line is Prosper Data is focused on the future and why is this important? because everyone on this call will spend the rest of their time in the future. The past is the past. And it's now, it's now more important than ever to have a method to sense and anticipate the pace of change. So how are consumers reacting to the COVID uh, crisis? I'm gonna move my little video window here. So uh, beginning in March, we started asking questions about how concerned are you about the COVID situation. And you can see that the not at alls have remained very low and the very uh, concerned and extremely concerned have risen over the months. Um, And 
these concerns from the general public are driving behavioral changes. If we look at the uh, extremely concerned and very concerned percentages over time, we see that 67% uh, of the America, uh, American adult population are concerned about the COVID situation. And with two thirds of the population either very concerned or concerned, behavioral changes are occurring in society, in commerce, in healthcare, as well as the general emotional well-being of the American consumer. So what are the consumers looking for? We posed the question uh, for several months, what, um, knowing that there are treatments and vaccines is one of the top two to the question, which of the following would make you feel most comfortable in returning to your normal life as it was before? Now we're looking here at data from uh, June and also July. Uh, we conduct our uh, interviews, surveys uh, at the first week of every month. So we're looking at the July information. And we see that of the top 10, development of a vaccine to prevent contracting the virus leads uh, therapies that would help uh, you recover from the virus is number two. And readily available testing is number three. To round out the top 10, we have when the doctor says it's okay, the state governor, and this is a, a question where people could select more than one answer. So within this data set, we could take a look at uh, the priorities. Uh, contact tracing. Uh, and then when you get into the bottom four of the top 10, uh, the president says it's okay, my family and friends say it's okay, uh, my employer says I can return to number or my pastor or worship leader. So if we look at the, the top two, uh, they definitely involve the uh, number one, the development of a vaccine to prevent contracting the virus, as well as the development of drug therapies that would help you recover from the virus. And as we look at this information, with 58% of the population saying that, that uh, knowing that there's a vaccine will help them uh, determine when it's proper to, you know, concern to normal if there is a normal. So the question is, so how are the consumers changing during this time period as the vaccines are being developed and the therapies are being developed? Well, number one is they're changing their shopping behavior. One, some by choice and some uh, by mandate. So if we looked at the question, how is your shopping behavior changing as a result of the coronavirus, we see uh, shopping in stores less, uh, shopping online more, avoiding certain types of shopping centers, and only 10% of the population saying they're not changing their uh, shopping, shopping behavior. Now, in, 19, uh, in 2019, long before COVID, uh, many retailers began increasing investment in the buy online and pick up in store services. And from August of last year to July of this year, um, the use of those services have doubled from 11% to 21%. So in terms of taking a look of where the puck's going in terms of uh, businesses expanding the buy online pickup in-store services, we, uh, the, the consumers are definitely uh, adopting that. Uh, the question of how tight 
uh, tight margin grocers can offer these services profitably is still an unanswered question. So as consumers are uh, experiencing the buy online, pick up in store, uh, the question is how will these, these recent experiences impact the long-term brand equity? The, the chart, this chart is from the same data set and it compares how the Walmart shoppers and the Kroger shoppers rate the uh, BOPIS services of each. Now the, the, the light blue line is, uh, is Walmart shoppers and their net promoter at 20% is, a, is, is good news for Walmart. The, the Kroger shoppers uh, commenting on their experience, uh, not, uh, not so good. The question becomes, how, how will these behaviors that are during the COVID pandemic, how will they affect shopping in the future? Well, the question posed uh, uh, with a, uh, a, a five-point Likert scale, agree, strongly to disagree. We have half the population believing that they're, the, the, the COVID situation that they're going through right now will change their purchasing uh, behaviors uh, in the future. And depending on which academic source that you refer to, uh, uh, the, the, they tell us that it takes three weeks to, to two months for people to form new habits. So which of these new habits will be uh, continue after the vaccines and the uh, therapeutics uh, become available. And then real quickly, just to wrap up, one of the changes, uh, as mentioned, as Michael mentioned earlier uh, in the previous session, is the, the adoption and use of, of, tele, of telemedicine. Last year, several retailers prior to the pandemic started expanding in-store health clinics while leading hospitals started expanding their telemedicine offerings. And if we look from, the, uh, from this year, from January to July to the question for non-life-threatening illnesses, colds, flus, and allergies, where do you prefer to go? We have, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, the retail clinics in store at about 5% and still 5% now for non-life-threatening and then the use of telemedicine, though, jumping from 7% to 12.3. And then my final chart, we'll try to take a look at a, a pivot point in this industry, which is the question that we asked uh, uh, going back to January 2019 of, have you used a retailer walk-in clinic in the last three months? And we see at the beginning of 19, that number at 16.4%, but that has dropped through the pandemic time period to 11%. And the use of telemedicine services during the coronavirus pandemic, we started asking that question in April, that went from 12%, and now we're up uh, between 24 and 26%. So looking at the longer term, it looks like telemedicine will be becoming the new habit uh, compared to walk-in clinics at retailers. Plus, uh, I don't think, uh, I think retailers need to reevaluate whether they really want sick people uh, coming into their stores in this uh, post-COVID world. So uh, just to wrap up, uh, Prosper's data covers the whole scope of consumers and how they live their life and can be used to sense and anticipate the pace of change 
and we have enough sample size to look at subpopulations and geographies, and we will be definitely monitoring the uh, attitudes towards vaccines and therapeutics in our future surveys. And we have some of this data available complementary on the uh, AWS data exchange. Thank you. So Dan and Phil, thank you very much. Uh, you know, uh, for the audience, I highly encourage you to book discovery sessions uh, with Graticule and Prosper. Uh, Graticule has a, a widespread of data from multiple global locations, uh, as well as supporting many use cases around analytics. And you know, if Phil had walk-on music, it should be feelings, nothing more than feelings. <laughs> the immortal words of Andy Williams. So. Uh, certainly customer sentiment is going to be an important piece and Phil and his team can give you all sorts of great insights there. So thank you, Dan. And thank Phil. you for watching. Don't forget, the data providers that you've just seen are ready and waiting to meet with you via Battlefin Connect. Visit battlefin.com for more details. And stay tuned for details about our next event. <laughs>